Let's turn in our Bibles again to the Psalm 139, the Psalm 139. Uh, we're still in this uh, sort of section of our series on Christian ethics, uh, looking at those matters that pertain to the family. Again, just in case you've forgotten our, our broader structure, we were looking at those three areas of ethics as contained in God's creative purposes. Uh, you think of the creation ordinances as they are known. You have the ordinance of, of the Sabbath day, and from that you worship and church. You have the ordinance of society, work, and thereby you have the ordinance of state and society and those affairs. And then you have the ordinance of marriage. And from that, therefore, your principles in the Word of God regarding family life. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the ethics, the principles of conduct that govern family life. And again, over the last number of weeks, we've been considering particularly the issue of abortion and the attack on the family in that particular thought. And so let's turn again to the Psalm 139. And let's just read in verse number 13. Again, a very important portion regarding this matter of abortion. And the word of God, the psalmist says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. My precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them. Amen. May God help us as we come to think of his word again today. We did take the time to recognize again that 50 years ago, the Supreme Court sought to unjustly legalize abortion in the states of this nation. Thankfully, again, there's been some degree of overturning of that in recent times, but the principles still govern the thoughts of so many among whom we live. We've got to know the minds of our neighbors that in conversations with them, we can discuss these things and ultimately turn their thoughts to Christ Jesus. We've got to help them to see that their thoughts are not God's thoughts and their ways are not God's thoughts. Therefore, they must be those who turn from their wicked ways and live. And so in many ways, conversations that, are, that come so readily in this subject, the conversations come and we have the opportunity to turn those conversations to gospel opportunities to make much of our Savior. There were two issues that again rise to the surface of the principles governing the Roe v. Wade decision. One was the personhood of the unborn, and the other was the privacy of the mother. And we've sought to address those two issues. Now going back to the personhood of the unborn, again, Roe v. Wade, that decision, I put it in these terms, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary, as the Supreme Court, in this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. A massive sidestep, of course, of the issues involved in this situation. And they sidestep the issue of the personhood of the unborn. Now, we looked at scriptures and we saw that when the Bible speaks of those that are unborn, pre-born, whatever term you want to use, the Bible speaks in those terms. The Bible speaks of the humanity and the living personhood of those that are not born. That is the consistent 
revelation of the Word of God, both Old and New Testament, whether it be Jeremiah filled with the Spirit or John the Baptist filled from the mother's womb, or whether it be the language regarding uh, John the Baptist's response to Christ coming in the womb of his mother, those languages that we saw in Luke, or whether it's what you see here in Psalm 139, the Bible consistently affirms the personhood of the unborn. And again, I made the point, you have this important reference there in verse number 16, thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. That unformed substance is denoted here by the inspired psalmist in terms of his person. It is my substance. It is yet unperfect, but it is mine. And personality, in terms of personhood, does not develop at some subsequent time. Personality, personhood, if we may put it that way, personhood belongs to the unborn at the point of conception on. It's the Bible's instruction in these regards. And so human life really is a continuum. It's not one minute you're not, the next minute you are, but rather human life and personhood is a continuum of maturity and development, not of not beginning and then beginning. So yes, there are stages in terms of the development of the unborn into a newborn, but those are stages of development. They are not some radical change of, oh, well, one minute you're not a person and the next minute you are. And so we thought to Again, emphasize this point that life does begin at conception. That is, again, the consistent word of the Scriptures. But there are some implications to this beyond the matter of abortion. That's where I want to turn today. If this is so, well, then there are things that are consequences of that that go beyond the remit of abortion. But yet we still can't get away from that subject also. And so I want to draw initially to three of these. Three implications, and again, I am very conscious this is not the time or place to discuss these matters in detail. This is not a class on medical ethics and Christian ethics and medicine, but the battle is being fought here today, and the battle against biblical truth is being fought in these areas. And so you you may say to yourself, well, I'm not versed in these situations. I'm not up to speed with all of the medical ethics. Well, that may be the case. But your neighbors are, and they're seeking to fight against the Word of God in these areas. And you'll also, more than likely in days to come, be asked questions regarding elections and ballots. How do you view in these certain areas? And these areas may well govern your thinking in different ways. You see, the battle for biblical truth is not just fought in the doctrines of the gospel, but also in the ethics of the Bible. And the devil attacks the church by undermining our ethical standards just as much as at times undermining the debt of Christ, for example. So I don't want to deal with all of the physiology here, but life beginning at conception, the issue at stake is in what we may term the implantation of fertilized embryos in the uterus of a woman. So implantation, again, I'm not going through all the physiology of what happens in human reproduction, But the issue we're dealing with is the issue of the implantation of the fertilized embryo in the uterus. These are issues that are very much up to date. MAP in the capitals there stands for the morning after pill. Again, a pill that is sought by a woman after the fear that she may become pregnant. 
Uh, and that's the issue. And so the morning after, the term is often used, the one will seek for some sort of a pill that may prevent a developing a pregnancy. Now, this is buying up to date, and you may not even aware how relevant this is. Friday, literally just Friday, the FDA changed the labeling on the morning after pill, or Plan B, as it's sometimes known, just on Friday. The Washington Post uh, card an article discussing that issue, and they headlined the article this way, morning after pill label change to clarify it does not cause abortion. That was the headline in the Washington Post regarding the FDA's changing of the label regarding Plan B, or what's known as the morning after pill. The subheading is read this way. The drug works mainly by delaying ovulation or possibly by preventing fertilization, regulators said. Now, this is an example of the most heinous form of reporting. It really has to be called out. I hadn't planned on it. But it came across my attention this weekend. I thought, well, in God's providence, here we are. We've got to discuss this again, and we're going to do it today. So I thank the Lord for the opportunity to highlight this particular article. And it's not even the article. It is the Federal Drug Administration that is at fault here. Again, we must call that out, expose that, and say, what's the problem here? So let me give some more detail regarding the, uh, the, the description. I'm going to borrow the language of the article in front of me. They say this, the FDA approved a change in labeling for the Plan B morning after pill on Friday to clarify it does not prevent a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus. Note how emphatic they are here. It does not prevent. That's their statement. Language, this is continuing the article, language that has been cited by abortion opponents to argue the medication causes abortions and should be restricted. Again, those who do oppose abortion have consistently raised issues with the morning after pill because of the understanding that it may well prevent implantation of a fertilized embryo. For years, again, I'm continuing with the article here, for years the FDA-approved label for Plan B, One Step, and its competitors said the medication works mainly by stopping the release of an egg from the ovary, or possibly by preventing fertilization. So mainly, stopping release of the egg, or preventing fertilization. But the labeling, they're they're saying this, but it also suggested that if an egg is fertilized, the drug may prevent it from attaching to the wall of the uterus. So historically, and hope you're following here, historically they said it may prevent ovulation, It may prevent fertilization subsequently, but if a fertilized egg is there, it may prevent implantation. And again, when I was taught these things, those were the three things that we were always taught as the possible modes of action and mechanism for the morning after pill. Now, I should be clear here. The morning after pill is a different drug than the abortion pills that are also now being advocated to be meal-ordered to various states. They're two different drugs, and they do work in different ways. Okay, so just not confuse the two situations here. Uh, the, genuine, the, the, the real, if you like, the abortion pill is intended to cause an abortion. The morning after pill, I'm suggesting, may cause an abortion in terms of implantation. Let me then read to you the words of the revision here. The FDA revised the label to say this. Plan B one step 
works before release of an egg from the ovary. As a result, plan B one step usually stops or delays the release of an egg from the ovary. I have no issue there. That's true. That is the normal mechanism of this particular product. It says this, Plan B one step is one tablet that contains a higher dose of levodextrol than birth control pills and works in a similar way to prevent pregnancy. But if you listen carefully, let me read two words again here. As a result, plan B one step usually stops or delays the release of an egg from the ovary. What's the important word in that sentence? Usually. The important word in that sentence is usually. And so from that change of labeling, the Washington Post then have the headline, the morning after pill label change to clarify it does not cause abortion. See how subtle this is? You see how the people of God need to be on their toes? You could simply glance at that on on an internet headline or glance at that newspaper and say, Oh, well, all this fuss over these years, it's not such a big deal after all. We don't need to take this so seriously. But it's a subtle attempt, again, to undermine the ethics of the Christian church regarding this particular subject. Usually, prevents ovulation can be true, but that does not mean it never causes an abortion in terms of the implantation of a fertilized embryo. There is that potential to prevent implantation. And again, with with my colleagues back in in the days when I was involved in some of these situations and discussions, my colleagues always, we always consistently as Christians said, we didn't argue that it didn't sometimes prevent ovulation. That wasn't the point. But the argument was, of course, that it may well have prevented implantation. And so in a personal, I'm just speaking personally here, I'd never prescribed the morning after, but I refused to do it. And there were Christian doctors with me who agreed with me, and we, uh, again, worked together in that regard. Although there may others in different practices would have, done, would have done that. And so there was, again, an issue in that, in that regard. Of course, another important principle, just again going offside, the issue of the mechanism here, is that, of course, the morning after pill is often used as a means to attempt to cover up the potential consequence of sin. And that's never really dealt with. And I, I say usually. And I will use the word usually there. And again, I met a lady who had, who had a, a large family uh, and came in fear and panic one day that she may have another child on the way. And that was her burden. And again, it was, a, it was a marriage situation. She wasn't trying to cover up sin in any regards. But generally, that is the case. Or you have young people who are seeking to cover up sin, and this is the method they will use to cover up the consequence of their sin. From that, and this issue of implantation, we have to deal with the subject of birth control Again, not in any detail, but be aware, and for those of your young people and parents and have these discussions, and again, it's a broad discussion, I'm not getting a discussion of that today in this forum. I will happily do so privately if you want to, but not in this forum uh, today. But I would make it clear that there are some forms of birth control and intrauterine devices that often will on occasion present impl- prevent implantation also. So I flag it up, be aware of that. Again, things that are often advocated by physicians as means of helping in certain areas, treatment of certain conditions, not even being used for birth control, but various hormonal preparations. 
they may on occasion prevent implantation and Christians should be aware of that and wary and should avoid those situations. The other issue regarding implantation here uh, and also life at conception is the issue of what's known as IVF, in vitro fertilization. Again, I'm not getting the details here, but I'm simply flagging up the matter that in the issue of in vitro fertilization, uh, fertilized embryos are produced outside the womb and then subsequently implanted. But you'll be aware the issue there is that you're producing often more embryos than those that are implanted. So then what do you do with these fertilized embryos that are never implanted? And so again, Christians must be aware of these situations. Again, there are, there are many Christian couples who, who, who again, are, are, are understandably, will come to see that understandably desiring to have children. And so they're encouraged by their physicians, why don't you consider IVF? Well, if you're considering that, you must do so with your head on understanding what is involved. And then having clear conversations regarding what may be involved in that situation. So those are some of the implications of the Christian principle that life begins at conception. Before I go on, are there any questions or concerns or comments on that? Again, I'm trying to avoid getting into too much of the details, um, but highlight these issues. No? Okay. I want to finish this section of our study on a positive, and that is life as a gift. The Christian understanding of, again, human reproduction and the matter of life beginning before birth, but from conception, really leads us to the point that we genuinely believe that life is a gift. And why I say this is positive, I must also highlight, again, a tragedy involved in life as a gift. And that is we have to affirm the reality of the grief of miscarriage and stillbirth. Stillbirth, generally the Christian church, has a well-understood appreciation for the grief of one who may lose a child at, say, 30 weeks, 35 weeks, or even full term. And there's a birth of a, of, a, of a baby at that point that is stillborn. And as a Christian church, we understand the tragedy of that. I think it's also the case that there are those in pastoral counseling and those in the church who do not appreciate the pain and the tragedy of early miscarriage. So I'm talking about someone who may lose a little one at eight or nine weeks gestation. They've just found out. They've just had maybe a week or two to enjoy the news of the prospect of a newborn. And that newborn is miscarried. We must understand as a church that when we're aware of such, we, are, we should be aware of a tremendous loss in that couple's experience. Again, I worked in... Uh, again, obstetrics for about six months of my, my medical training and worked alongside some unbelieving doctors and dealt often with miscarriage in that context. And one of the things that grieved me was a doctor dealing with a dear lady who was brokenhearted early, early miscarriage. And he came alongside her and said to her, well, you know, one in four, one in five pregnancies miscarry." These things happen, you'll have another one. Using truth, but in such a way that had no caring heart for the suffering of the individual. As a Christian church, we should understand that what's been lost there is a life. There's been the loss, not of potential life, but of life itself. And so the couple have all of their hopes and expectations. They're thinking already about the nursery and the, the stroll and all of these things. 
and they find that's all crashing in upon them. And the Christian church can be as guilty as the world in saying these things happen. We should understand we're dealing with profound human loss. Is it different in terms of maybe the loss of a five-year-old child? Well, yes, there are some differences there in terms of the duration of experience and the building of human uh, connections. Yes, there are some distinctions. But we believe life begins at conception. Therefore, a miscarriage is the loss of life. And we should weep with those who weep and come alongside them with pastoral sympathy and support. When you come to stillbirths, there is the interesting issue of the place for proper funeral arrangements. Pennsylvania has some interesting laws regarding the funeral arrangements for stillbirths. After 16 weeks, which really is quite early in worldwide terms, after 16 weeks gestation, a stillbirth is treated the same way as any other death and requires a legal disposition at a cemetery or, again, in legal terms, or cremation. Miscarriage. There is no such laws regarding dealing with the remains prior to 16 weeks. And part of that is because they do not deem one stillborn or miscarriage prior to 16 weeks, they do not deem them as a person in that regard. See, this inconsistency. And so I, I certainly commend I commend the laws regarding what they do at 16 weeks in some other place, at maybe 20 weeks or 24 weeks. So 16 weeks is early, that's good. Again, those, though, who miscarry, there's no, there's no birth certificate or there's no death certificate issued. There's no record of internment for those who are miscarried prior to 16 weeks. Just highlight these issues. These are ethical issues that we should have in our minds. It may well come across our church families in the coming days. We don't know what awaits our younger families regarding the children that are being born and brought into birth in this congregation. And so in some ways I, I want to be clear that if these things happen as a church family, we must rally around those who may suffer such profound loss. And if there is such a situation and there's a funeral service held in this place, you do everything you can to come along and support that family in their time of need. Because we believe that life begins at conception. Consistency. And so on the one hand we say no abortion. On the other hand we must be consistent regarding these other matters. But I did say I wanted to end positively. And that is the joy and blessing of children. If we are, again, those who rightly oppose abortion, we must also be those who do not see children as something that is a tragic burden to be borne. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And as a church, we must affirm that and be clear in that. The Bible is procreative. The Bible's language is very much for the birth of children in families. Turn back, of course, to the obvious place, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verse number 28, again, of course, God made man and woman. Verse number 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There's this command. He said, well, of course, it's a creative command. 
It's a command that comes to the first parents, and of course it is their responsibility to, to populate the earth. That command is then repeated in Genesis chapter 9, and the verse number 7, And you be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Now here I want to just qualify this to some degree. I do not believe that families who have no children are thereby guilty of breaking God's law. These are mandates that are creative mandates. The creative mandate is repeated after the flood. There are potentially reasons, not common, but reasons whereby a couple may choose not to have children. They are rare, but they are real. We should be conscious of that, and again, we should not judge. And again, I, I say this. Sometimes people can be insensitive regarding those who do not have children. A young couple, perhaps married a couple of years, three, four years, no children come along, and someone may well come alongside them and say, well, well when are you going to have, to have children? And you've no idea what's happened in the previous three or four years in that couple's situation. Treat these things, please, with great sensitivity. Don't judge don't prejudge, don't presume. These are difficult and sensitive issues, but it does not undermine the Bible's testimony that children are a blessing and a gift from the Lord. So turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, of course, are the portions of Scripture that particularly highlight this nature of blessings. And this stands alongside the, the obvious burden that comes from those who do not have children in the context of the Old Covenant. Think of Sarah and Hannah and such. But the Psalm 1 to 7, verse number 3, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Verse 5, Happy is the man that hath a quiver full of them. This idea of the joy and the light of having children that come in the grace of the Lord. You've also got in Psalm 1, 2, 8. Again, this term of blessed, blesses everyone that feareth the Lord. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like all the plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. Now, of course, we need to be sensitive in these areas. Remember that in the Psalms, we're dealing with the physical blessings of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant give blessings that were physical. You obey the Word of God, your crops multiply, your cattle multiplies, and part of that was blessings in terms of increase in the family. It was a covenant of promise to those who obeyed the things of the Lord. So we've got to apply this again with care regarding the difference between the Old Covenant and the New spiritual blessings and promises in the new. And I'll say more of that in this morning's service. So be careful. Allow privacy. But at the same time, as a church, we must affirm the blessing of God with children being added to our families. So three very simple words, and then we're finished. Children are indeed a gift from the Lord. And the church should rejoice in the birth of children and seek to support parents in that regard. You get that principle even in Titus chapter 2. Turn across to Titus 2. Now, what is interesting in Titus chapter 2, of course, is that Paul is writing to a pastor regarding things that should be in place in the church. 
The church affirms the gift of children. And the church, therefore, has an interest in the welfare of children in the church. Now, we believe in the separation of the spheres of responsibility. And the church must be careful not to interfere in the family affairs. The man is indeed the head of his own home. But however, there is interaction at the same time. Here's Paul teaching Titus. Here's what you say to the, the woman in the church, verse number 3. The aged woman likewise. Verse 4. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. And so older women have the responsibility in a godly church to support younger women in the nurturing of their children, giving direction and guidance, giving help and support and encouragement. Part of what it is, again, to be a godly church. So we believe in the gift of children. Well, understand that gift, there comes responsibilities. I'm so thankful that downstairs right now, we have young people being taught in the things of God at their age level, appropriate to their understanding. As a church, we're seeking to support and encourage parents in that regard. We're not taking children from their parents. Again, as long as I'm pastor of this church, we will never have a place where the children will be removed from the regular Sunday morning service. We, we meet as families in that regard, but that does not mean that we don't allow for times and occasions when our young people and our children are taught distinctively and separately. Last night, we had a wonderful time of fellowship with the young people in our home. Again, an opportunity to, to speak to them at their level and discuss things that are relevant to them in their personal experience. So the church, we affirm, children are a gift from God. And in that sense, they're also a stewardship. The quiver is full, full of arrows, arrows that are shaped and molded and formed so that they shoot straight. You don't just go out there and pick a twig off the tree and stick it in a bow. You guys know these better than I do in terms of you hunting men there. And you understand you've got to shape that arrow. This is the days of wood, not the days of these metal arrows now. But you get these wooden arrows and they have to be shaped in such a way that they would shoot straight. And so does the children. There's a responsibility. You've got to cut off the branches. You've got to smooth it. It involves pain at times, admonition and reproof and correction. That as they would seek to swerve off one way, you correct the arrow that it goes straight. It's a wonderful stewardship. There is that matter of training up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Two different possible explanations of that text. One, you train a child in the right way, and when they're old, don't depart from it. The other possibility is, leave children to their own ways. Train them in their own devices, and they will not depart from going off the path. Both of those interpretations are possible regarding that particular proverb. But either one of them presupposes the need to train and instruct and to mold. And that is not done by bringing your children to church. It's not done even by having a 15 or 20 minute family altar. It is done by continually, 24-7, seven days a week, investing your children in the things of God. The principles that govern their lives in every circumstance. So when problems arise, you bring them back to the Bible continually. Training them in the ways of the Lord. Admonishing them when they do those things against the will of God. Commending them and encouraging them when they grow in the understanding of the ways of the Lord. That's a stewardship. And thirdly, it is a burden. 
I'm not using that term burden as a negative. You know, so we're, we're all guilty, okay? I have five children, and I understand the, the, the difficulties at times. It is very difficult at times. And at times, we may complain to each other. Oh, the children are just such just, so a challenge, and I get there. But there are burden, particularly in terms of prayer. Every child, their life beginning at conception, is born of Adam and born in sin. And salvation is of God and not man. And so as we raise our children, we must do so as burden that we pray for them. And I have to say, in the last number of months in our church prayer meeting, I have been so encouraged that many of you on a Wednesday night have prayed by name for the children of this congregation. You share the burden. You realize the burden that parents carry, and you share that burden, and you pray for them because only God can change their hearts. Good parenting is important, but it can't lead to salvation. Any more than good preaching will lead to the salvation of people in the congregation. Good parenting is a means of God. He will bless that means. But ultimately, it is only the work of God that brings a child to Christ Jesus. And we must carry that burden to the Lord. Even unsaved children are a blessing from God. They're a blessing from God in terms of the temporal blessings they may give in our lives. But they're a blessing from God in that having unsaved children is a continually sanctifying experience. It takes us to God in prayer, and it also challenges us. Do we really believe what we say we believe? It's a blessing to be confronted with that challenge in your life. Do we really believe what we say we believe? These are the gifts that God gives us. So, so much that can be said and lines drawn from that. It's deliberately just a summary of these principles. But may God help us to ensure the Bible is indeed not only the rule of our faith, but also of our practice. We have probably a minute or two if someone wants to ask a question or make a comment. And if not, we'll just close in prayer. Okay. Well, let's pray. Let's pray right now for our families, our young people, our children. Eternal God, we thank you for the gift that you've given our church in regarding the children that are under our stewardship. Thank you for blessing families. We thank you, dear Father, for the children that gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day under the Word. And we pray that you use your Word in their hearts, for faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. So change the hearts of our children. We pray, O God, that you would deliver them from their own ways. And give them a heart for the ways of God. We pray, O oh God, that you would give our families much wisdom living in this fallen world. The confronted with so many ethical difficulties. We pray, O oh God, that they would know discernment to do those things that please the Lord. And so do bless our homes. Keep your hand upon us all. Help us, O oh God, for those who have unsaved children. Save them, we pray. O oh God, have mercy upon us. We look to thee. Bless our worship as we continue in your presence today. Help us in Christ's name. Amen and amen.